Bruce Iglauer founded Alligator Records in 1971, and throughout the past almost 50 years, it has grown into the premier blues label in the U.S., if not the world. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk to Alligator founder Bruce Iglauer about the blues, the future of music, and his 50 years in the business. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Bruce Iglauer. Bruce, welcome to the future of what. Thanks, Portia. And let's find out what it is the future of. <laughs> See, we could spend the entire time talking about that. That would really deflect <laughs> us, but we could do that. Because what the hell is going on? That's the question. Well, every day it's the question, and more and more with every passing day. Yeah. But let's, I guess we should stick to something involving music. Exactly. And also, we're we're talking about you here. We're talking about your label. And your label, I mean, my gosh, what are we at here in terms of age? Are you guys at 50? A mere, no, a mere 48 years. Oh, a mere 48 years, yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, since I began it in in living (laughs) in a one-room apartment. Was sleeping on a mattress on the floor. It was it was very you know kind of luxurious and plush. Yes, at the age of like twenty three, right? You were pretty young, right? I produ- I produced the, my first album at twenty three. I was twenty four by the time it was released, but I had already been in the business for a year and a half, working at Delmark Records for my hero Bob Kester. And right, and now the history, the legend of Alligator Records is that you wanted to sign a band and Bob did not want to sign the band. And it's absolutely true. The band was Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers. I fell in love with them at a place called Florence's Lounge on the south side of Chicago on a Sunday afternoon in January of 1970. And I spent over a year trying to convince my boss. I should explain that my highfalutin job was shipping clerk and sweeper (laughs) of floors and unloader of trucks. So it wasn't exactly what you would call, you know, your uh, associate producer or A&R man kind of work. But I tried to convince him to record my favorite band because they were so much fun. And I couldn't. And in annoyance, disgust, and I'll show you, I started a label to record my favorite band. And now, 48 years later, I run a label to record my favorite artists. That's right. Now, just give us a little insight here. How did a white boy from Michigan end up loving the blues? Well, the blues found me. I wasn't exploring or looking for the blues. I was a folky during the 60s. I had my acoustic guitar and my harmonica on a rack, <laughs> and I was really, really, really bad. Oh, my God. And, and, and not, I'm not being modest now. I'm just, I'm just being honest. Really bad. But in 1966, when I was in college up in Appleton, Wisconsin, I decided to go down to the University of Chicago where my sister, the smart one, was a student and go to the University of Chicago Folk Festival. Now, I didn't really know much about traditional American music. You know, I knew a lot about you know, people in, in striped shirts, matching striped shirts, you know, singing uh, <laughs> Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, uh, <laughs> but nothing about you know, the people from the Hollers of Kentucky who actually wrote Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley. Right. So I went, and at this festival, amongst other musicians, was Mississippi Fred McDowell, one man from Como, Mississippi, with a slide on his little finger and singing songs that either were traditional or that he had made up from his everyday life. A guy who probably couldn't read and write to speak of, who was easily 40 years older than I was. And something reached out across all of those rows of seats and grabbed me and slapped me around and said, wake up, wake up, this is for you. Wow. And it was, you know, it was that that moment, you know, the the light comes down from the heavens and the music changes. And I was entranced. 
I went back to Appleton, Wisconsin, to the one record store, and I ordered the one Mississippi Fred McDowell record that we could find in a catalog, which was on the unknown Arhuli label. Uh-huh. And it took nine months for the record store to find a copy of the record. <laughs> So I learned a lot about the independent blues record business real fast. Right, right. Boy, is that company small. (laughs) (laughs) And very quickly, I bought every blues record I could find, which weren't very many. There were very few blues LPs at that point. I started doing the blues show on my college radio station with my iota or half an iota of blues knowledge. And at one point, I read about the Jazz Record Mart in Chicago, because I read an article with a bunch of of blues record reviews, and at the the end it said, and if you ever want to hear this stuff in its real environment, go to the Jazz Record Mart in Chicago and find Bob Kester, the proprietor of Delmark Records and the Jazz Record Mart, and he will take you to the south side or west side of Chicago where you can hear this music as it's supposed to be. And in 1969, I talked my college into allowing me to to, uh, choose a blues artist for a concert, And armed only with this knowledge and nothing else, having been to Chicago once in my life, I went down on the Greyhound bus to the Jazz Record Mart and found Bob Kester, and my life was changed forever, just like it was by Fred McDowell. Wow. Wow. So, hey, I just wrote a book about this stuff. You sure did, Bitten by the Blues. Bitten by the Blues, yes. Bitten as in, I got infected and I couldn't get (laughs) uninfected. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Uh, there was an artist on Sun Records named Dr. Ross, and he did a song called Boogie Disease. And in Boogie Disease, he said, I may get better, but I'll never get well. I've got the boogie disease. Well, I was bitten by the blues, and I never got well. Wow. <laughs> wow. I still have the blues disease. That's amazing. Now, let's talk about the business side for a little bit, because was it Bob Kester who taught you sort of how to run a label and how to do deals with artists? Because Well, Bob Kester taught me more about how not to run a label. Okay. <laughs> Bob Kester, who has great ears and is a charismatic, incredibly knowledgeable, funny, smart man who's still in the business at the age of 86, he sold his label last year, but he's still running a store. Wow. And telling his customers what they should buy rather than having them tell him what they want. (laughs) And Bob was the worst businessman I've ever known. How he kept that label in business for now over 65 years is beyond me. You know, he did a lot of handshake deals. I never saw a Delmark contract. I think some of them existed, but I never saw one. And he ran his recording sessions totally by the seat of his pants. The first recording session I ever went to when I was working for Bob, I went as a gopher, you know, the guy who goes for things. Yes. And actually, my first trip gophering was I went down to 51st and Wentworth on the south side and bailed out the rhythm section. who had been arrested for a traffic violation <laughs> trying, <laughs> trying to get to the session. <laughs> so, hey, hey, boy, go for the rhythm section. <laughs> You know, I thought I was going to be going for sandwiches. Right. But it was a Junior Wells session on Delmark, a wonderful session. And it turned out that Bob, my boss, the producer, had no idea what songs were going to get recorded. He was entirely counting on Junior to pick the songs, pick the band, teach them the arrangements, you know, on the spot or in rehearsal or whatever. And Bob would show up and make sure that somebody pointed the microphones in the right direction and hit record. <laughs> wow. Okay. And, How'd that go? <laughs> and when that worked, when that worked, it worked great. And he made fabulous records. And when it didn't work, it was chaos. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I'm just, I'm not as much a fan of chance as my boss was. Uh-huh. So I actually invented something called rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> and for the most part, not always, but for the most part, I've used that trick of rehearsing ever since. Now, does Alligator record all its artists, or do you have your own recording studio? Is that how that works? No, I don't have a studio because I've made records all over the country, and in fact, a few out of the country. And also, I'm not the only producer on the label. I've produced or co-produced about 130 albums, Mm -hmm. but we have 300 albums in the catalog. So obviously, you know, more than 130 were produced by other people, sometimes the artists, sometimes professional producers, sometimes by just sort of by chance. Right. And so I've signed artists. I have bought finished masters on occasion. 
I don't like to do it, but every once in a while I'll license a master for a period of time uh, if I can't talk the artist into actually selling it to me. Right. So we now have over 300 releases, and we release anywhere from 8 to 10 or 11 new releases a year. Wow. So I'm fascinated by this because it seems like it's possibly different in the blues realm because in your relationship with the artist seems to be a very important part of your business. And you have these longstanding relationships that go on for years and years and years. And even, I assume, with the, like the families of people after they're deceased. Yes, uh, sometimes that it happens that way. I worked with Coco Taylor, uh, the Queen of the Blues, from 1974 till her death in 2009. And I still am regularly in touch with her daughter and grandkids. I went to her house many times. And she said, you know, I was a member of the family. Now, that doesn't always happen that way. But there have been a lot of close personal relationships. I spent my 60th birthday at Cook County Jail, not in the jail. I mean, well, I actually was in the jail, but I wasn't arrested and in the jail. One of my artists had gotten in trouble kind of through no fault of his own and not with any malicious intent. But he was an out-of-town artist, and he got arrested, and he needed to get bailed out. And I spent from 9 o'clock in the morning when he had his hearing till 11 o'clock at night getting him out of jail. And then when I finally got him out of jail, I took him to a 24-hour diner to eat, and then I took him to my home and put him to sleep in the guest room. He was completely shaken. He had never been in jail before, and he needed somebody to take care of him. Yeah. And the thought that I would let him fend for himself never crossed my mind. Right. Of course. It's that kind of relationship. I've been on the road with a lot of musicians over the years. I still carry gear and help set up the band and break down the band, you know, help with the sound mix if, if needed, and you know, do whatever needs to be done. So, it, yeah, it's, it can be a very close relationship. I was with Coco Taylor when she died. Mm, yeah. You also, in addition to your artists, you also have quite a long-standing number of employees. Oh, yeah. I have uh, 14 people who work for me, and with the exception of one person who replaced a long-standing employee a little over a year ago, my newbie has been here seven years, and my most senior employee has been here since sometime in the very early 1980s. Wow. So 30 years, just a, a baby, a, a mere baby. Right, right. And after I was in the one-room apartment, when the label became flourishing and had two-and-a-half releases, I moved to a two-room apartment <laughs> in the same building. And then I bought this ramshackle house. And I ran the company, of course, against all zoning regulations, out of the ramshackle house for 10 years, warehousing LPs in the basement and, and later cassettes in the kitchen <laughs> and, and with, a, with a copier in the dining room and people everywhere. I had seven people coming to my house to work by the time I moved into a real commercial building. Right. So uh, my 14 people are wonderful and never get any credit, so thanks for asking about them. They do such things as radio promotion and publicity and internet promotion and sales management and graphic design and financial and international marketing. And there's uh, one person who just makes sure that we have just enough CDs for a small part of our catalog LPs that we need to sell at any one moment. Not too many, not too few. And we run a mail order business. It's uh, everybody's pretty busy all the time.
was Give Me Back My Wig by Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Bruce Iglauer. So, Bruce, my feeling is that there is never a shortage of fabulous new artists in the world. It seems to me like that is not a problem that we are facing in the music business. There's sort of always new talent coming along. Would you agree? For me, it's a little bit more difficult because I'm dealing in in a field of music that has this 100-plus year tradition, 100 years of, of recording, more than 100 years of recording, plus, you know, 100 years of being a folk music or more before that. And the music that was a popular music in the black community isn't a popular music in the black community anymore. You know, times have changed, and blues is considered old folks' music amongst black people. So the artists that I first recorded who were nurtured on that blues scene in the the south and west side ghettos, because they were ghettos and are ghettos, and down south, is pretty much gone. Hmm. And now it's a lot of artists, instead of artists who grew up in the tradition, it's artists who discovered it on records or occasionally because people in their family were musicians. Little Ed Williams has become now the senior, in terms of years, member of the roster. He's been with me since the mid-1980s. And his uncle was a a fabulous Chicago blues man named J.B. Hutto. And J.B. taught Ed and Ed's brother, James, who's the bass player, to play when they were children. So they, they did grow up in the tradition. But for the most part, it's people who discovered it through records or through seeing somebody live in a concert, not in a neighborhood club, not on a front porch. So as blues has become less fashionable or unfashionable amongst black people, the nature of the musicians has changed. And what's happened is you you sort of run into two groups of musicians. One group who really want to reproduce what's already been done because they feel that's the real thing and they love it and they want to play it. Just like when I worked at, at Jazz Record Mart and there were people who were New Orleans jazz fans and all they wanted to hear was Muskrat Ramble and When the Saints Go Marching In and anything that was any newer than that wasn't jazz. Right. Right. So there are people for whom anything that was recorded after 1970 wasn't blues. And then you've got people who are pushing the envelope, sometimes by becoming what we can call blues rockers or guitar heroes, and sometimes by being inspired by this tradition but trying to do something new with it. So what I run into is a lot of people who are wanting to be exciting blues musicians, but who are not really at a national or international level of talent yet. Mm -hmm. And some of them won't get there. A lot of weekend warriors, a lot of people who love the music like I do and have more talent than I do, which isn't saying much, (laughs) but, but who don't have that extra creativity or charisma to make great blues records. So I'm, I look for artists. I don't, I, 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 artists come to me all the time, but the artists that I sign are few and far between. And I would like more people who were trying to carry this music into the future with one foot in the tradition and one foot in being something new and fresh and, and definitely being contemporary in terms of making music that speaks to a contemporary audience. God help me, I'm 71 years old. And when I discovered the blues, you know, I was, I was very young and I was really raw and I had all that youthful enthusiasm and it was exciting and new and it was tough music and it came out of this difficult environment and all this tradition and it was fascinating. And now too many blues fans look like me, mm. which means that they have gray hair or no hair <laughs> and they discovered this music in the 60s or 70s. I wish that I saw more 20-year-olds in the audience. I see some, but not enough. And I wish I saw twenty more 20-year-olds on stage. I see some, but not enough. Right. Well, I was going to ask you about what are the, since you and your staff have been doing this for so long, you're in a great place to tell us about the changes in the marketplace that you have seen. But that's obviously quite a big one is the audience. Well, sure. And, and of course, my audience or much of my audience, like me, grew up wanting to own music and wanting to own music in physical form. 
Uh, the idea of, yeah, I've got a digital file on my computer, or yeah, I can go to Spotify or Apple Music or, or Amazon Music Unlimited and stream it, is very uninteresting to a lot of them. They want to hold and touch and hug the music that they own. And as we've moved away from, it's been a long time now since there were a lot of record stores, almost 20 years since the decline of record stores started, you know, with illegal Napster. And a lot of my audience still has not adapted to the really being in the digital age. They can do it. They buy now and then from Amazon physical goods. They might buy a download or they might go and stream something. But it isn't the same thing as having shelves and shelves of CDs or LPs. You know, I still have a wall of LPs. I mean, how can you, how can you give away or sell your LPs? Right. <laughs> you can hold them and touch them and read liner notes and, and look at them because they're big and, and they've got art on them. And, and you know, it's, it's a different thing from being able to access music. And so, you know, our sales have not, are not what they were because people don't buy as much. Yeah. And our audience, our existing audience has not adapted well to the digital age. So whereas I, I read that the major labels are making, you know, half their money from streaming services, we're making about 12% of our money from streaming services. And it's creeping upward. I bet we get to 14% this year. Hmm. And it's, it's a real hassle. It's a real problem. Yeah. And I mean, the streaming services are, I mean, what we've sort of in the last three years that since the music business has been sort of off the precipice of us all worrying that, you know, next year it's all over. I think what we've realized about streaming services is that it streaming at this moment only really serves about four or five genres. Well, well, it certainly serves hit driven genres. Exactly. Right. And the Spotify's business model is, you know, we're going to put a, a new, you know, little Wayne, single on the service and we're going to get a billion people streaming it next week. Right. And, right. and the idea of, you know, something that may in its life stream, a hundred thousand streams, isn't really of interest to them. Right. It's not their business model. They, they're looking for bigger cash flow than can be provided by, you know, niche market or adult market genres. And that is true for blues, but also for jazz, for classical, for real folk music, for world music, all of the genres that have heavily grown-up audiences that aren't interested in hearing the same single 20 times or playing it for their friends 20 times, but may stream an album they love you know, once a month for the rest of their lives if they find the streaming services and feel the streaming services are welcoming them. About a year and a half ago, you, you and I are members of an organization called A2IM, the American Association for Independent Music. And about a year and a half ago, at an A2IM convention, there was a meeting put on by Spotify. And I'm not picking on Spotify because this would apply to almost all the streaming services. And somebody who runs a bluegrass label said to Spotify in the meeting, if our label's fans were to go to Spotify and go to a bluegrass playlist they would look at that playlist and they would laugh and they would never come back to Spotify again. And that's because the people who are putting together your playlist for niche music don't have the slightest idea what they're doing. Right. And that would pretty much apply to blues as well, where people, if they bother to put together a playlist, they're either quickly consulting some list that appears elsewhere, you know, 25 classic Chicago blues tracks, or they're just guessing, or they're picking some artists they like. So the, the playlists, they're better now, but they still can be show very little knowledge of, of those genres by the, what they call the curators, the people who do the playlists. And, and that's because it's, these aren't priorities for, for the streaming services. It's like being an ant and complaining because an elephant stepped on you. Well, it's the nature <laughs> of the elephant. The elephant wasn't trying to step on you. You were just there. Right. And the elephant was stampeding from one place to another. Right. And, you know, they're not sitting around, you know, rubbing their hands together and saying, how can we screw these adult-oriented niche labels? They're just saying, how can we get more people to listen to hits? And, oh, yeah, there's that other stuff, too. Right. Well, and the thing is, it, that's funny, is that it's true for my label as well, because we're primarily a punk label, and there's really not a lot of punk listening that goes on in the streaming space. 
Although I have to say, I was going to say it's not necessarily an adult-oriented format, but I should check myself since I'm 47 years old, and I think I'm considered an adult. <laughs> I think I'm probably my target audience. You know, we go only by chronology, not by actual emotional maturity. So, <laughs> Thank you, Speaking Bruce. for myself, not for you, I pride myself on my immaturity. Right. Uh, you know, so my body <laughs> may have this number of years, but my brain is still about 12. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's say 19. Let's let's hope for nineteen. Okay. That's what I well, hope for. I think my wife would my <laughs> wife would hope for at least nineteen. Exactly. But yes, I, I you know, I understand what you mean. And I'm not sure what the answer is to this, but I'll tell you the last few years where, you know, streaming services are supposed to be changing everything have been a real struggle for us. Yeah. A real struggle for yeah. this label. Yeah, I understand that. I could put my banker on the call to testify <laughs> on this subject. <laughs> It's the, we've had some pretty ugly financial years. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be alright. was I'm a Woman by Coco Taylor. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse, and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Bruce Iglauer. So what do you think? I mean, you know, obviously there's still a market for CDs. There's still a market for vinyl. And there are still fans for the artists that we both put out. But, you know, do you have any predictions for the music industry? Or do you feel like there's no point in even doing that? We should just do what we do and, you know tomorrow will come and we'll deal with it. Well, most, mostly I'm so busy doing what I do that I don't have a chance to think about predicting. Right. But one of the things that does excite me is that the digital revolution has done one really good thing, and that's to make music available pretty much worldwide. Right. You know, iTunes now, as of, I don't know, maybe it was two years ago that they expanded their list of countries, and now virtually every country in the world has iTunes and Apple Music, except problematic China, but I'll get to that in a second. So, you know, every country in Africa, for example, you can stream or download my music, which, of course, has its roots in Africa. Mm -hmm. And 
that wasn't the case even a few years ago. That doesn't mean we're getting a whole lot of listening or, or sales in Africa, but it means that the music is there for people to discover. And that's exciting. Right. And now through an organization called Merlin, of which I imagine you're a member as well. Yes. Merlin is, should we, do your listeners already know what Merlin is? Go ahead and explain it again. It's always good to hear, have a refresher. Okay. Merlin, Merlin is a trade organization based in the United Kingdom. And in the United Kingdom, trade organizations can negotiate collectively. That's not true in the United States. It's against antitrust. But in England, it's okay. And Merlin has recently made a deal for its member labels with three of the biggest streaming services in China, Tencent, Alibaba, and NetEase. And over a period of time, my music, and I imagine your music, is going to become available, and it already has to some extent, in China for the world's most populous country to discover. So my hope for the future is not that Spotify and Apple Music will realize that adult consumers are, are really good because once they subscribe, they don't unsubscribe, but that the world market will discover the blues and discover my music and your music. I'll, you, you, can, you can join in this celebration. Thanks. We'll discover this music with the same sense of excitement that I discovered Fred McDowell and Hound Dog Taylor and, and listen and say, wow, this is emotional, unvarnished, raw, energetic, fun, soul-touching music that I want to hear over and over again. So I'm excited that now I can say to people, yes, my music is in China. And of course, it's already in India. So it's now in the most populous countries in the world. I think that's thrilling. It is thrilling. And it's, you know, the answer to the question, the up top question, what is this program called? The future of what? Well, it's the future of that. That's one thing. Oh, yes, absolutely. I assume that my grandchildren will have chips implanted in their brains <laughs> so that instead of actually having to go online, you know, on, on their mobile device, because we can't call it a phone anymore, right. on their mobile device to access my music on Spotify, they'll just be able to think about it and it will play in their <laughs> it brains. It will play in their brains. I think I already have that problem. Can I get that fixed? Is there a place to go? Yeah, well, I think you <laughs> have the exactly problem that you have so much music in your brain that you don't even need a chip implanted. Exactly, that's the problem. And it goes around and around. And Oh, yeah, just when you're uh, trying to sleep, yeah. Exactly, all of the above. Well, and it sounds like from what you've said earlier that, you know, that's sort of the positive future of recorded music. The question, though, is will there be artists to perform that music for people live, which in and of itself is such an important part of your experience, my experience, many people's experience with music, you know, the non-recorded part. The music that, that I love is generated by the interaction between live musicians and live audiences. You can't make it in your bedroom and make it work like you can with certain other kinds of music. It has to do with getting an emotional reaction from the audience. It has to do with energizing the audience. And if I make really good records, they'll have the same effect as a live performance. But the music is born in live performance. I, mean, I don't want to sound too pretentious here, but the music that I record is supposed to be soul healing music. And in order to be soul healing music, you've got to have the availability of the healer and the person who needs to be healed. Mm. I hesitate to say performer, but the, the creator of the music and the recipient of the music. Right. And the music needs to be shared between those people. One of the things I loved about the blues clubs on the south side and the west side of Chicago when I first came here, and there was no scene in the white neighborhoods at all, was everybody came from the same little towns in the south, and they had all grown up on this music. And the people on stage, if there was a stage, or in the corner, you know, with the uh, singing with uh, Mike plugged into the guitar amp, were exactly like the people in the audience, except they happened to have musical talent. But otherwise, they were culturally exactly the same people, and they spoke the same spoken and musical language because they had shared the same lives. Now it's different. Now we have people on stage who aren't necessarily like the people in the audience, although I record you know, people who grew up like I did, you know, comfortably white middle-class people who just felt it so much that, and had talent that they filtered it through the experience of their own lives. My most recent signing is a singing drummer who grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. 
and is as white as she can be. If you mention the sun to her, she gets a sunburn. <laughs> and her name, her name is, is Lindsay Beaver. That's her real name. And it's the Canadian national animal. Yeah. And she writes a lot of her own material and sings with an amazing passion. Wow. And when I look for artists, the thing I look for first and foremost is passion. Yes. Yeah. I want people who just who can't hold back even if they wanted to. Yeah. Who just lay it all out there, can't slick and cover up their souls and can't keep from you know, making a raw emotional statement. They have to. Yeah. Uh, like John Lee Hooker said, it's in them and it's got to come out. Yeah. And Lindsay is like that. And I I didn't intend to sign her. I didn't intend to record her. But the music spoke too loudly to me. I couldn't say no. It made no sense commercially. Almost nobody knows who she is. She's touring like a maniac, but you know she's sleeping on people's couches. She tours with a three-piece band, and they're all sleeping on people's couches, and you know doing it just like you know young punk bands did. Yeah. And trying to create an audience through the strength of their live performances, and just doing that night after night, no matter how tired, no matter how many miles they drove, and I love that. And I love that about her. And and she, you know, certainly didn't grow up in Como, Mississippi. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I love I love that story too, Bruce, because it means that you're going to keep doing this because this is what you love, and you'd have to get a real job, and that's not okay. No, I'm not qualified for anything. <laughs> your Who wife, me? your wife expects you to live where you live and do what you do. Give me a break. Oh yeah, my wife is is amazing. <laughs> that she puts up with me. I think you I think you you may have lived a version of this story, right? Yeah. Where you know, just obsessive compulsive, can't stop working, can't stop being passionate people and the <laughs> the suckers who fall in love with them. <laughs> oh my god. Can we have write a book <laughs> with that as the title? <laughs> That's perfect. My wife has been incredibly supportive. And she's retired now, but she had her own career about which she was extremely passionate, which had nothing to do with music, but did good works in, in the in the world and made life better for other people and did so, you know, working till 10 o'clock at night every night. So I got used to that concept and she understood it when she stopped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It does take some pretty crazy people to put up with folks who live this life like I do. Yeah, it's true. Oh, I should mention some of my artists. Oh yeah, mention, I mentioned mention one of my artists. Yeah, people have no. I mentioned so I mentioned my first artist and my most recent signing. Yes. So so maybe I should mention a few of my other artists. Do it. So people can actually I don't know go and listen to the music or something. For real. So another woman. We have a, a few women on the label. I I like uh, I've always liked women and I found some <laughs> very talented ones. Marsha Ball, the singer songwriter, piano player, Roadhouse rocker, New Orleans R and B. Queen, the Texas Roadhouse Queen, Marsha Ball, who's been performing for, I don't know, 40 years? Wow. Still is hard at it. Just was put in the Austin City Limits Hall of Fame. Selwyn Birchwood, who's a young, visionary blues artist from Florida, who was led to the blues from first listening to his sister's hair bands, <laughs> and from that to Jimi Hendrix, and from Jimi Hendrix to Buddy Guy, and that was what oh, wow. pushed him over the edge. Wow. And uh, he's doing all original material and a very charismatic young artist and a great guy. Elvin Bishop, who's been recording since when I was in high school and is still recording at the age of 75, former member of the Paul Butterfield Band, former Capricorn recording artist, still writing songs, still geeking all the time, and also just hilarious human being. Uh, Taranzo Cannon, who's one of my newer signings, paid his dues for almost 30 years as a sideman and still works as a Chicago Transit Authority bus driver. Wow. Four days a week, and, and gigs sometimes till four in the morning, and is driving the bus at seven in the morning. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And tours all over the world, and we're just working on his second album. The Cashbox Kings, who are revivalists, where I was in the studio with them literally yesterday, very much uh, people writing in the spirit of the classic Muddy Waters, Holland Wolf, Chicago sound. Tommy Castro, the uh, California-based blues rock guitar hero and songwriter and blue-eyed soul man, who's also been doing it for about 35 years. Uh-huh. The new queen of the blues, Shamika Copeland, who is up for possible Grammy nomination in actually 
bringing blues and Americana together. Tinsley Ellis, I know we're running out of time here. Tinsley Ellis, <laughs> the Atlanta-based blues rock guitar hero, the raw and wonderful Kentucky Headhunters, who have one foot in blues and one foot in country, Little Ed and the Blues Imperials, probably carrying on the Chicago tradition, Eric Lindell, who's kind of an Americana songwriter, Coca Montoya, fabulous blues rock guitar hero and great singer, Nick Moss, who, who's another Chicagoan, uh, the little big band Room Full of Blues, soul man Curtis Salgado, and I may be announcing two new signings within the next month. Wow. Including somebody who's, if fingers crossed, somebody who's not yet turned 20. Oh, my God. Well, see, there's a lot, a lot going forward. The future is bright, right, Bruce? It's exciting. The music, you know, the business is tiring. The music is thrilling. Yeah. The music inspires me every damn day. There you go. Well, you said it. I bet it does for you, too. It does. And I hope it does for your listeners. Yeah, I hope so, too. All right, Bruce Iglauer, what a delight. It's always a delight to talk to you. Thanks for being with us today on The Future of What? Thank you. And if you let me know what it's the future of, I'll see if I can <laughs> more. It's always a pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you in June in New York. Absolutely. That was Bad Contract by Taranzo Cannon. I hope you've been listening to our new podcast series, Girl Germs, about Bratmobile's seminal album, Potty Mouth. There are only two episodes left, and you can check them out wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Selwyn Birchwood. Selwyn, welcome to The Future of What? Hey, thanks for having me on. So today we're doing a spotlight on Alligator Records, the incredible, venerable blues label that you are on. That's which right. Is awesome. <laughs> now tell me a little bit about how you got into the blues, because I understand from Mr. Bruce Iglauer that you got into music at first by listening to your sister's hair metal bands. <laughs> well, <laughs> growing up, you know, you you don't have access to anything of your own. You kind of have to pick up whatever's around you. So. When I was a kid, you know, that's what my sister was into. And I grew up when MTV kind of ruling supreme in the 90s. And I I would, you know, watch the videos. And I was always intrigued more by the guitar than, than the music itself, I think. And, you know, I always had a had a liking to it. And it wasn't until I got older that I decided that I wanted to play an instrument and kind of landed back on guitar. And at that point, I was about 12 and 13. And you know, just kind of was picking up what was on the radio, which I bored with pretty quickly because a lot of the songs were the same sort of chords and same sort of, you know, kind of cheesy produced music. And it wasn't until I got a Jimi Hendrix record when I was about 16 or 17 that my ears really opened up. And, you know, I, I was really never one of the people that wanted to play like him, but I was intrigued by the sounds of the music and the creativity of it because I never heard anything like it and Jimi hendrix today you still can't really put into a genre he's, he's sort of a genre to himself and from there i, I kind of dug back to see what might possess someone to write that kind of music and when you look back in his 
biography, you find, you know, all the older blues guys, the Muddy Waters, Elmore James, Buddy Guy, especially, he spoke of a lot. And from there, you know, it seemed like the same week I found out about him, Buddy Guy was actually coming to the House of Blues Orlando. So I got a ticket and went in there blindly, not knowing what I was walking into. And anybody that's seen Buddy Guy live, you know, knows exactly what they're <laughs> getting into. And Oh, my God. Yeah. I was just completely shaken, and, and I said, whatever this is that I'm experiencing and witnessing right now, I knew it was something special. Wow. And I said, you know, whatever that is, that's what I want to learn, that's what I want to do, and that's what I want to be, and that kind of set me on my way there. Wow. And that's not, I mean, that is not that common an experience these days. People tend, you know, young people tend to go into different genres, but the blues, you know, even though it's such a traditional classic you know, American music genre, I'm concerned that it might be <laughs> getting less and less attention as the years go by. Well, I'm hoping that a, another person really raises it up. It's one of those things that it's not in the mainstream. It's not on people's consciousness, at least not in any true form. When you bring up the word blues, people have a preconceived notion as to what it is. And most of the time, it's not accurate you know so you need one of those sort of portals that that people can get into it through in my case it was Jimi hendrix but stevie ray vaughn was a big one for it. the rolling stones were a big one for it you know harkening back because they didn't claim to be inventing anything they they said no you guys need to listen to howling wolf you need to listen to muddy waters and it takes you know, someone that's of, uh, you know, that more higher notoriety to point people onto it. And I'm hoping that, you know, there's going to be another one of those to come up soon. I know, you know, John Mayer and Jack White have pointed back quite a bit as they cover some classic blues stuff, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping it'll get a spotlight on it again in that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Jack White, because I think that that is, I remember listening to, and of course, I, I didn't even know what the record was. This was years and years ago, after the White Stripes came out. But it was, you know, it was an original sort of old blues record from, I think, the 40s. And I was like, oh, my God, this is where Jack White got this from. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it was the exact, yeah, I was like, amazing. oh, my God, it's incredible. There's people, you know, a lot of people out there that think the Black Keys invented hill country music. And it's, <laughs> it, you know, you got to dig back, man. I'm glad that people like that music. I'm glad that people like Eric Clapton and Joe Bonamassa and all this stuff. But I just encourage people to dig back, you know, see what they listen to. And I, I feel like it's not to condone drugs, but it's like when you get the pure <laughs> drugs that they talk about, you know, that's what it's like when you get back to that root of that music, you know, it's a really cool thing. Absolutely. So let's talk about your debut came out on Alligator Records in 2014. How did you get hooked up with Bruce in the first place? I actually met Bruce at the International Blues Challenge in, in 2012. I went competing in that challenge with my band after we won the Tampa competition. And we ended up making it to the finals that year, which meant that we were in the top nine out of about 200 bands that year. So we played in the Orpheum Theater over there in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and Bruce was one of the judges. And I was kind of, you know, I didn't go in there expecting to to win anything or to even be in the finals. I was just trying to network and whatnot. And I got a text message from a friend saying, you know, the president of Alligator Records just bought your CD. <laughs> and uh, I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. And I kind of caught eyes with him in the hallway while I was out promoting, and he, he pulled me aside and, you know, was asking what I was up to and what my intentions were with music and stuff. And I had just finished recording a record, actually, and I said, man, you know, I'd like you to hear it if you don't mind, and he was surprisingly open, and I was hoping to just get sort of a critique, and he came back to me and said, you know, he thought that I had about half a record, and he wanted to see what else I, I could come up with, and I spent about a year shopping songs with him and you know we got a full record together and after i had won the international blues challenge after we went back in 2013 i think that that really helped to secure it for him wow. <laughs> he had something easier to sell at that point yeah but then mm -hmm. that's what became the don't call no ambulance record was was my recordings that i had first shopped to him at that point wow so i'm assuming by that point you actually were familiar with alligator records yeah, you know, when I got into blues music, I, I didn't realize what label, you know, the guys and, and the songs that I was listening to were on, but all of the old stuff that I that I was digging up, a lot of it was 
alligator artists and you know because at that time there was Kazaa and Napster and that type of stuff and you know you could go to a record store but blues selection and the blues section is is minimal so I was online trying to dig up everything I could and you know I found Sun Seals and Albert Collins and Luther Allison and Hound Dog Taylor, Coco Taylor, you know all these artists and you know it kind of became a common theme once I figured it out I was like oh these are all alligator records artists and recordings and when i was actually going to master and, and mix my don't call no ambulance record bruce asked for some samples of records that i liked the sound of and i was sending them you know this sun seal stuff or this albert collins stuff and he's saying you know you don't have to send me alligator records and i'm like man this is i'm not this is what i listen to you know oh that's <laughs> so, funny kind of cool that's a good story Totally. So how has it been working with Alligator? I mean, this show is a music business podcast, and I run a, an independent record label that's been around about 27 years, which makes us just a child compared to Alligator Records, you know, with they've been around 48 years. You know, so it's, it's interesting to me to see how artists perceive the work that independent labels do, because I don't know that necessarily everybody understands how much work goes into helping artists get their music out there. Yeah, man, it's a, a beautiful thing. And I didn't, I truly didn't understand until I actually flew up to Chicago and met with everybody at the record label. You know, they had told me that there was 15, 16 people working at the label. And I, I thought that was a lot of people. But once I actually <laughs> got up there and talked to them and they explained what their job was. And once I started working with them and, and saw how everybody worked, I was like, God, every, every single person in this building, you know, is a workaholic almost as much as Bruce is. <laughs> and, you know, those 15, 16 people do the amount of work of 60 or 70 people. I mean, they work their, their tails off and it, it's such a blessing to be able to work with an outfit like that where they're just as passionate and excited and driven about promoting the music and getting it out there as we are about making the music and touring and, and performing. So it's a, a really cool thing, man. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Selwyn Birchwood, thank you so much for talking to me today on The Future of What? Well, thank you for having me, man. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers, Coco Taylor, Toronzo Cannon, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. <laughs>